from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And this is our last podcast of the year, where we will review the events of 2017 and look ahead at what 2018 might bring. I'm with Charles Grant, Director of the CER, Simon Tilford, Deputy Director, and Ian Bond, who is the Director of Foreign Policy at the CER. We have recorded a similar podcast last year, and so this time I will also confront the three of you with some of the predictions that you've made 12 months ago, so that should be fun. I want to start by looking at some of the work that all of you have done over the past year, some of the most seminal publications from the three of you. Charles, should we start with you? You've published a report about relaunching the EU in 2017. Why was 2017 the right year to relaunch the EU? Well, some of the problems that have been afflicting the EU in recent years have got a little bit better. The euro crisis is rather less acute. The eurozone economy is growing quite nicely. The migration crisis is a bit less bad than it was in 2016. The flows coming in from Turkey and North Africa have diminished. And then Brexit, rather than leading to a chain reaction, seems to have led quite the contrary to a sort of feeling of greater solidarity. So has Trump, perhaps. So I think there's a feeling amongst many European leaders that with Macron elected in France uh, since May, Merkel probably surviving in Germany, you have two strong leaders who can lead a kind of revival of the EU. And there is some feeling in Brussels that that's the way forward. And I don't think anything dramatic is going to change quickly. But now is a very good time to talk about new policies for reviving the EU and relaunching it. Mm. Simon, you've written a piece in 2017 about the British and their exceptionalism, which I think is one of the most viewed pieces of the CER of all times. What has 2017 taught us about Britain in the year after the Brexit referendum? I think it's taught us that we didn't know the country that well. The British didn't know their country that well, and the rest of the world certainly didn't, that they made assumptions about the British, that the British would not succumb to emotion, uh, hysteria, ideology in the way they have. The British themselves, I think many, certainly those of us on the Remain side, took for granted that the country, despite the strength of US skepticism, would always do the sensible, rational, empirical thing. And I think what we've learned since the referendum is that countries can change. But I think also it shows what can happen when uh, a country lets the populist cat out of the bag and how difficult it is to put it back in again and that can happen in a country as stable and as liberal and as internationalist as the UK and I think it's it's a warning for others. Mm. Ian, in the beginning of the year you've written quite a few pieces on the Eurasian Economic Union on the One Belt One Road initiative. Why in 2017 do you think that Europeans should turn their attention to the economic integration projects of Russia, former Soviet Union states and China? Well, I'd say that the Eurasian Economic Union has actually made less progress than I anticipated, and I didn't anticipate much progress there. But it seems to me that the Russians are actually rather losing interest in that project in many ways. On the other side, the Chinese have gone from strength to strength, and uh, they held a large so-called Belt and Road Summit in Beijing in May, which brought together, I think, leaders of, of about 40 countries. They are starting to play a more assertive role on the world stage. Now that Xi Jinping has the 19th Party Congress behind him and is confirmed in office for at least the next five years, if not longer, you're seeing China trying to step 
step up on the world stage much more. And I think that's something which the Europeans have to pay a lot of attention to. And that's linked to something else which has been happening this year, which is the disengagement of the United States from many multilateral agencies, treaties and so on, which has left more space for others to occupy. You know, there's, there's a vacuum left by the US doing less globally. And the Chinese seem to be one of the powers that's trying to fill that space. Last year, I asked you what were the issues that the world should have paid more attention to in the year that had just passed. And I want to ask you that same question again today. Charles, last year you said that the world should pay more attention to North Korea. And really, I think you were spot on there. North Korea turned out to be one of the big topics of 2017. Is that still your answer then? I think it's still my answer today. I'm more worried now than I was a year ago. I've just been in Washington talking to some of President Trump's close advisors. They are preparing for war. They are making military preparations and military plans for attacking North Korea, perhaps as a sort of fairly small surgical strike of some of his nuclear facilities to kind of scare him into changing his behavior. Now, many of us think that's a pretty crazy idea because if America strikes North Korea, North Korea can almost instantly kill very large numbers of South Koreans through artillery bombardment. But that doesn't mean it won't happen because many people close to Trump think that North Korea cannot be deterred in the way that, say, Russia was deterred during the Cold War because they think the regime is led by somebody who's unhinged and they think that it doesn't have a true perception of America's determination or of its own relative weakness in military terms. So there's a real feeling that sanctions are probably failing unless the Chinese tighten the screws to make the North Koreans sweat more. Negotiations not on. Previously, the North Koreans have used negotiations just to extend their nuclear program. And there isn't really any option, many people in America think, except military action, unless late in the day the Chinese really deliver North Korea by tightening the sanctions more than they're doing at the moment. Mm. Simon, last year you said that the world had not paid enough attention to the US elections, that Europeans had not been prepared for Trump winning the presidency. Do you think that 2017 has led the Europeans to find a better way to engage with Trump's America? And what do you think the world has neglected in the past year? I don't think anyone's actually found a better way for dealing with, with the Trump administration. It's completely new territory for everyone. For the US to be governed in this way is, is unfamiliar and it's dangerous and unsettling. There has been a welcome acknowledgement, I think, that Europe needs to stand on its own two feet for security and defence. But I think we need to be realistic about how quickly Europe could make progress in this field. It's going to remain dependent on the US and that means continuing to engage with the administration as well as we can. And what should the world pay more attention to in 2018? Well, it's kind of good news on the economic front. I mean, we're seeing a fairly broad-based recovery across the developed world. I think the big question mark is whether that recovery translates into better job security, rising wages, and a reduction in the kind of insecurity that has fed support for populism, even in countries that have been doing well economically. So it's good news, but we still face a very big challenge in terms of the structure of growth we're seeing, who it's benefiting and in terms of the kind of insecurity, frustration, fear that people have for the future. Growth is not going to change that. People are still going to remain fearful of what new technology means for them and their children. Mm. Ian, in the last year, you said that the world had not paid enough attention to the Middle East. You said that Europeans could no longer afford to be a bystander to the conflicts of that region. Do you think that the EU, the Europeans, have done a bit better on that over the last year? I'm sorry to say, I don't think they have. And I think that the situation is looking even more grim as a result. Certainly, if one looks at the Arabian Peninsula, you have complete state failure in Yemen as a result of the conflict, the proxy conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that means that 
even at the moment that ISIS is being squeezed out of Iraq and potentially out of Syria, you're creating another ungoverned space from which it's quite likely, I think, that we will see further extremism, flows of migrants and so on. So that could be very destabilizing. Egypt looks in quite poor state at the moment. We had this huge attack quite recently on a mosque in uh, in Sinai. It's not at all clear that the Egyptian government has an effective strategy for improving the security situation there. And we have not really got to grips with the migration issues that flow from the fact that Libya, again, is, is a largely ungoverned space. And it does seem to me that the Europeans have much too often been willing to let others take the lead in trying to settle security problems that first and foremost are going to land on, on European shores, sometimes literally. This still seems to me to be an area from which Europe faces great dangers. So last year, I asked the three of you what were causes for optimism in 2016. And all three of you struggled with your answers, really. But I did look at last year's episode. And Charles, you said that you thought that in 2016, liberals had understood finally that they had to fight for the world order that they wanted. Do you think that that's still true? Yes, I think we're seeing a world in which strong men are doing remarkably well. Some of them are not democratically elected, really, like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Some are elected but are not behaving in a democratic way, like Mr. Erdogan in Turkey. Some are democratically elected but are nevertheless authoritarian figures, like Modi in India and Mr. Abe in Japan. We're living in an age of strong men rather than strong liberal institutions, and that remains the case. Nevertheless, I think if you look at Europe, there is some cause for for some optimism. Uh, we've already discussed the better economic situation in Europe, and I do think combination of Macron's energy and enthusiasm and ideas with Merkel's authority and experience is quite a powerful combination, and we'll see progress not only in European defence collaboration, cooperation in 2018, but probably also are moving towards a better managed Eurozone. The, the movement will be very slow and painful, and there'll be a conflict between the French and the Germans, the Germans wanting to use Eurozone governance reform to make everybody respect fiscal rules more strictly. The French will push the Germans to accept elements of a transfer union. There'll be another conflict between the Brussels institutions and the governments led by Germany as to who is in charge of the new Eurozone governance, with the Commission hoping that it's in charge, the Germans saying, no, no, it's not you in charge, it's us in charge. But I do expect progress towards things like a Eurozone budget, a European monetary fund, possibly the beginnings of a European finance ministry, very much in sketch form beginnings of a parliamentary accountability system for Eurozone governance. None of this will probably make much difference macroeconomically in the short term, but optimists will say that once you make these institutional changes in the long run, it's laying the groundwork for a really significant step forward towards more integrated Eurozone in the long term. And optimism is what I'm asking for at this point yeah, in time. Yeah. Simon, you said rather poetically last December that it was the young that gave you hope. What gives you hope in 2017? I think it depends on the country. I think it is that young British people remain really quite strikingly internationalist and liberal. This is despite having borne the brunt of austerity, despite having a huge collapse in, in living standards. And yet they haven't succumbed to the populist bug that young Italians and young French people have fallen prey to. But as I say, that's the UK and to a lesser extent the US. And I think that it's a reason to be optimistic about those two countries. I don't know if it's possible to be that optimistic about the young elsewhere. So I don't think my prediction was actually that accurate. I think it was specific to the English-speaking countries, but I don't think it really said much about the lie of the land across Europe as a whole. What gave you reason for optimism then in 2017? 
Well, the recovery has been stronger than I thought in Europe. I mean, I think the economic recovery really now does have legs. The question, I guess, is how it's used. It could go either of two ways. It could free up the political space for the participating Eurozone governments to agree some of the reforms that many people think are need to put the currency unions on a sounder footing going forward. Or it could cause complacency. It could make it easier for various governments, not least the German one, to say that we don't need further significant reforms of the Eurozone. My fear is that it will be the latter and that we won't get significant reforms. Now, the longer the recovery lasts, then the better the position they'll be in to cope with the next downturn. So I think things look okay. The question now is how they use that recovery. Okay, well, this is as much optimism as we can hope for from you tonight. Ian, last year you settled in the end on the peace processes in Cyprus and Colombia as causes for optimism. What about tonight? Yes, to be honest, in the foreign policy area, I was too optimistic last year about even that rather uh, limited palette. This year, I struggle even more on the foreign policy side. But I think the one glimmer of optimism that I have is that the liberal democracies, certainly in Europe, in some of North America, are starting to understand that they have to defend themselves and are putting more investment into that, not just in terms of hard defense, although that's certainly very important, but they're starting to get to grips with the fact that there is a war of narratives going on, that the ideological war that ended with the end of the Cold War has come back in a completely different form, that you face opponents, particularly in Russia, but not exclusively in Russia, who use social media or the internet to propagate very different ideas from those which we feel comfortable with and on the whole defend. And my grounds for optimism are that finally you are seeing more effort to try and push back on narratives that say the West is failing, the, the Western liberal democratic model is failing, you know, your societies are failing, your civilization is going in the wrong direction. Perhaps it's linked to the, the young as well, but I, I am actually a bit more hopeful than Simon that people from the generations below mine will actually take that fight back to the less democratic, the more authoritarian states and groups. And we'll see in the next year that there will be the start of a fight back in favour of the, the values that we have held dear for the last 40, 50, 60 years. Thank you very much. Charles, finally, I want to ask you to give us perhaps a bit of an outlook for 2018 for the CIA. What are the plans uh, for the Centre for European Reform next year? Well, I guess that quite a lot of our work will be on the Brexit subject, as it's been this year. And all I'll say on that is I think quite likely that as the British economy turns downwards, as it is slowly beginning to do, and as it becomes apparent to the British people that the deal they're going to get on Brexit is not a very good deal in terms of Britain's economic partnership with the EU, and it's not in Britain's interest to move forward with it, I do think the public opinion will start to shift towards regretting Brexit. That doesn't mean that the British are not going to go ahead with Brexit. It doesn't mean Parliament will vote to stop the Article 50 process. I think we're heading on the way out. Those in charge of Britain, which is like to be the Conservative Party for the foreseeable future, will have to confront the shift in public opinion. This means that the pressures for a softer Brexit will grow from business lobbies, from opposition politicians, from Britain's partners in the world. They will all hope for a softer Brexit. And there is a chance that Britain may end up considering options like staying in the customs union. I think that is quite plausible. In terms of what the CR does, you know, people should be aware we're not a Brexit think tank. We have a Brussels office. Half our researchers are not British, as is yourself, Sophia. And we 
we'll go on doing lots of work on the Eurozone, on the single market, on relations with Russia and China, on transatlantic relations, on European institutions, on justice and home affairs and police cooperation. That's going to be our bread and butter next year. We think the EU is ripe for reform. It is going to reform. And finally, we'll be having a big party because the CR is 20 years old. We intend to celebrate it in fine style. Wonderful. Thank you very much, all three of you. Happy holidays. A happy new year. I'll see you again in 2018. Thanks for listening to the CER podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CER underscore EU. Thank you.